I remember as a child asking my father, why are we still here? Why are we still here on earth? If Christ has come, if he has brought his kingdom, if he has died on the cross for sinners, and if we as his people have been saved, why are we still here? Why hasn't he taken us home? Why doesn't he take us home the moment that we're saved? In times like this, of world crisis and of world panic, I'm sure many people are asking a form of this question. What is happening? What is God doing? And for those of us who are Christians, why has not Christ returned yet? Well, as one preacher put it in answer to this question, why are we still here? Well, the reason we're not already in hell is because of God's great grace. But the reason we are not already in heaven is because of God's great commission. Let me say that again. The reason we're not already in hell is because of God's great grace. But the reason we are not already in heaven is because of God's great commission. You see, we have a job to do as God's people, and the work is not yet finished. And so as we consider this question, we return this morning to a study in the Gospel of Luke. A study in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. Luke, in his account, his eyewitness account of Jesus' life and ministry, Luke's been answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And through his piecing together of these accounts, he's been showing how various people have learned answers to that question. You see, there are many answers to this question of who is Jesus. Luke has been showing us Jesus' authority and his power over creation. He's shown us Jesus' power over Satan and his demons. He's shown us his power over sickness as he has every infirmity. And even his power over death as he's raised the dead. But most importantly, we've seen that Jesus has the power and the authority to forgive sinners, to forgive sin. In our passage this morning, we see Jesus revealing himself anew in another way. By Luke 19. If you are taking notes, our main point is this. Our main point is this. The king commissions and the king provides. The and he, that is Jesus, called the twelve together. And he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them away to the kingdom of God to heal. And he said, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. And never stay there. And from there, depart. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust. from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Point number one, the king's commission. Point number one, the king's commission. Quickly for context, until this point in Jesus' ministry, the disciples have mostly been along for the ride. Jesus has been watching, they've been seeing, they've been observing. But now, Jesus
entrusts them with the ministry that he had called them to. You remember when he called Peter and Andrew and James and John the fishermen earlier in Luke chapter 4. He says that you will no longer catch fish, but from now on you will catch men, people. And now look at verse 1. He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. You see, in our passage, we have a first commission. Jesus is demonstrating how his kingdom is going to spread. It's going to spread, verse 2, by proclaiming the kingdom of God. Or as it says in verse 6, preaching the gospel. We saw the last two weeks in our study of 2 Timothy 3 and 4 that the proclamation of God's word is the method by which God's people are saved and the method by which they grow. And we see here in Jesus' ministry that the same is true. The only way God's kingdom is established and grown is through preaching, through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has been his plan from before the foundations of the earth. And what is this message of the kingdom? What is this gospel message that the disciples were preaching? Well, it is a message of the kingdom of God. A message of God's rule, of God's plan from the very beginning when He created the universe and created the earth. When He created mankind and placed mankind in a garden paradise. It was God's plan from the very beginning for there to be a kingdom in which we as His created human beings would live under His rule and blessing in paradise. In the beginning, man lived as part of God's kingdom under His reign and rule. And what made that garden paradise so wonderful was not simply the beauty that was there in the trees and the fruit and the beautiful creation. No, what made it wonderful was the presence of God Himself. Their Creator God, their loving ruler was there, and they were in a good and right relationship with Him. In rejecting the King, Adam and Eve forfeited theirs and their future children's citizenship to that good kingdom. We were now banished. We were now cast out of God's presence and evicted from His kingdom. And the whole Bible, from the Old Testament to the New, has been pointing to the day that this Redeemer would come and restore God's people back to Him once and for all. All nations, all tribes and tongues, one day worshiping the one true God again in His kingdom. And the good news of the Gospel is that if we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, we get God. We get this relationship that has been broken, restored. You see, the Gospel message, the Gospel of the Kingdom, is really a message about God. God is the Gospel. And Jesus has made a way for us to be back in a right relationship with God again. To be a part of His kingdom again. And that is good news. Christ Himself has come. He has come to live that perfect life we couldn't live. He died on the cross, a cruel death of a criminal in the place of sinners like you and me. And He offers salvation, sins forgiven, a, a relationship with God restored if we would repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And this message of the Gospel is good news. The disciples were not only empowered to preach this message, but they were also given authority by Christ to demonstrate His power over sickness and evil spirits. These disciples were entrusted with authority from Christ to demonstrate His authority to the world as a proof that their message was not their own, but God's. Jesus, in His own healing and 
His casting out of demons and his ministry was always showing little snapshots of what that kingdom was going to look like in the future. And here in this first commission, the disciples are given that authority as well. Now some give too much unhealthy attention to the apostles' unique gifts, believing that those gifts are for everyone. As J.C. Ryle put it more than a century ago in his expository thoughts on the gospel, this passage is one which throws much light on the work of Christian ministers in every age. And then he says this, No doubt the miraculous power which the apostles possessed made their position very unlike that of any other body of men in the church. And no doubt in many respects they stood alone and had no successors. What's Ryle saying? Well, there's some uniqueness here to the apostles' ministry. They are given, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 12, and verse 12, the signs of a true apostle. Paul says that he had such signs as he went to Corinth. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Or as... Paul writes in Ephesians 2, there is a unique ministry that the disciples, these apostles, these first 12 are given in building the foundation of the church. J.C. Ryle goes on to say, yet the words of our Lord in this place that is in this passage must not be confined entirely to the apostles. They contain deep wisdom for Christians for all time. You see, this initial commission of Jesus sending the 12 disciples out is a mirror and a foreshadowing of the Great Commission. This mission anticipates the Great Commission, and it prepared the apostles to lead the early church in obeying that Great Commission. Many of us probably memorize the Great Commission from Matthew 28, 18 to 20. There, Jesus, after he has died and been raised from the dead, commissions his disciples. And says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the reason we are still on earth, because of Christ's great commission. Now, we are in a season where people are afraid of what it is that is spreading a potentially deadly virus. My friend who's a missionary in Germany posted on Facebook this week a helpful reminder, a challenge for myself and my Christian friends to help keep things in perspective. Let's pray more fervently about the spread of the gospel throughout the world than the spread of a virus. She then quotes 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, Pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly. And then she says, May we worry more about what we're sharing than what we're catching. The early church embraced this great commission, and it wasn't only apostles and elders in the churches that preached the gospel. It was deacons, as we see in Acts 7 and 8 with Philip and Stephen. And it was regular members, as we see in Acts 8, verses 1 to 4, who, as they were scattered through persecution, proclaimed Christ and his kingdom. Do you know, brothers and sisters, God has put you in a particular place in time. He's put you in a particular family, with a particular school or job, with particular neighbors and friends. There are people in your life and on your path That God is calling you to be faithful to proclaim the gospel to. This great commission that is foreshadowed here with the apostles. We have been given by Christ and it puts us sweet, though light, as all of Christ's burdens are. A sweet burden on us to love others by telling them about their sin. About their rebellion against the king and the salvation that can be theirs through faith in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let me ask, are you being faithful with this task? Are you being faithful with the Great Commission? Let me encourage you, as you consider where to begin. I know for many of us, 
any large task can seem overwhelming. Think of the Great Commission. It's a global task. It's the whole world preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations. It may seem so big that you don't know where to start. In the words of an old Persian proverb, there's simply too much to do. I'm simply going to go to bed now. Sometimes we don't know where to begin because it just seems so big. Let me encourage you. Begin with prayer. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to have specific prayer today where you name people in your life, people around you that you feel convicted to share the gospel with and pray for them by name daily. Let me encourage you to ask God for specific opportunities whereby you can share the gospel with those people that you've prayed for, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, a co-worker, a neighbor. And then as you pray, when God brings those opportunities as you interact with them, embrace them. Walk through those doors that God opens for you. Don't hold back, but speak boldly. I encourage you as well. We talk about having a culture of discipleship, but part of that culture means we can also have a a culture of evangelism where we see people come to faith in Christ as we work together with one another. That only happens as we freely share the good news. So let me encourage you Christians to be encouraging one another to share the gospel and encourage others when you hear of them sharing the gospel and even cooperate with one another and think through ways where you can perhaps link arms and work together to share the gospel with others. Whether that's a Bible study that you open up to non-Christians and encourage other Christians in the church to invite non-Christian friends who are interested in hearing about Christ or simply having uh, meetups where you invite both your Christian and non-Christian friends to be interacting with one another. I encourage you to work together in this. Do you know, even in those early days of this coronavirus in Wuhan, China, Chinese Christians were going out in protective gear and giving out face masks and Bibles and holding signs about Jesus and salvation that can be found in Him. Isn't that wonderful? Let me encourage you as well, parents, to be discipling your children in the joyful duty of evangelism. You can start by speaking of non-Christians around you to your children and in front of your children with love and compassion. Teaching your children that all human beings are image bearers and ought to be honored as such. And one way that we honor our fellow image bearers is by sharing the gospel with them that reconciles them back to their creator in whose image they were made. Let me encourage you, parents, to be talking about the non-Christians around you, not as people to be protecting your family from, but as opportunities in which you can be sharing Christ too. Look at, then, in verse 3, the way that these disciples were to be going about this mission. In verse 3, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Jesus sends his disciples out empty-handed. He requires them to go without any provision. I want you to remember back as you consider this, the last trip that you took. Remember the last time you went on a, a trip Did you pack? Did you pack? Of course you did. We all pack for trips. I'm a classic overpacker. The last trip I went on, I was hurting because I had too much stuff in my backpack, always taking more than I really need, just in case. Some of us overpack. Some of us are minimalist. But before a trip, I'm sure all of us are going to labor over decisions of what to bring, what to wear, depending on the weather how much money to bring, what toiletries or medicines to bring along, what our kids are going to need. Can you imagine going on a trip with nothing? That's essentially what Jesus does here with his beloved disciples. What is he doing? 
He's teaching them something of his sovereign and loving care for them as they accomplish his work. They must never forget that it is not their mission, it is his. It's Jesus' mission. And they must rely on his power, on his help, and on his provision for the task. Now, practically, the way that Jesus would provide was through the hospitality and support of the people who would accept the the message that these disciples would bring. This whole thing may sound incredibly countercultural to us because we live in a culture where being prepared is a virtue, almost a moral virtue. And a culture in which lack of preparation is sometimes seen as so foolish or immature that it borders on sinful. We hate risk. We love control. And Jesus is asking his disciples to relinquish control over some huge details of their trip. This was countercultural to them too. Imagine going on a journey with no plan B and no plan C and no first century AAA that you could call in a time of need. Look at how Jesus explains this in verse 4. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. It has always been Jesus' plan for his commission to be a partnership mission. How do we fulfill the Great Commission? Well, always together. We fulfill the Great Commission together. Whether it's linking arms throughout all of church history with those generations that have gone before being faithful in their generation to preach the gospel to the nations. We, we link arms with the, the, the whole of the church through time. But practically, in our own day, in our own generation, we fulfill the Great Commission together through partnerships. John Piper, talking about the Great Commission, famously said this, When it comes to the Great Commission, you have three choices, three options. You can go. That is, you can go and take the gospel to another nation. That's option one. Option two, you can send. That is, you can support those that go. Or three, you can be disobedient. There are no other options. You see, when it comes to the Great Commission, we are either those that go and take the gospel to the nations like these disciples did, or we can support and send those that go by showing them hospitality and sending them on their journey in a manner, as John puts it in 3 John, worthy of God. John talks about these missionaries in his day, in the first generation of the church. And he commends a church that was partnering with such missionaries. And he says this, Beloved, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like this that we may be with them fellow workers for the truth. This is how the Great Commission is accomplished, through people working together, partnering together. And by those that go and those that send those that go, we partner together and are together faithful to the same mission. I'm not sure your knowledge of being an accountant, but there's some kind of double accounting that God does with our rewards. Those that go and those that send those that go are both seen as being faithful and accounted with the same rewards for the same ministry because those that go cannot go without those that send them. And not everyone can go. So God calls both those that go and those that send them as being faithful to the Great Commission. In this mission, the disciples are sent by Christ. They go out with a gospel message. And their hearers receive. We do this as a church. We do this by supporting missionaries who have gone to take the gospel to the nations. They go. We send them by supporting them financially, by sending monthly checks, and by supporting them with our prayers. We are seen by God as both being faithful and making disciples of all nations. I want to pause for a minute and encourage you, Christian that all of us should be willing to ask, perhaps even regularly to ask God, 
whether he would send us. I know when it comes to missions, often we think of that as being something for someone else to do, for the other to do. But you know, all of us should be willing to go if Christ calls us to. That may scare you a little. If it does, let me encourage you to search your heart and ask why. If you have the desire to go, check your heart and touch base with your elders. We would love as your pastors to give you counsel, to evaluate your life, whether you're being faithful with evangelism now. Getting on a plane and going across the world isn't going to make you a faithful evangelist or discipler. But let me encourage you, if you're considering going, to get counsel on plans and whether you're equipped to do this. Christians are those who experience immense joy in serving as ambassadors of God's kingdom wherever it may take us. One interesting command that Jesus gives his disciples here is to stay in the house that they first enter upon coming to a town. You see that in verse 4? That is, the disciples were to be content with God's provision. There was to be no couch hopping or house hopping on this trip. The disciples were not to pick and choose among the people offering hospitality in a town, climbing up the societal ladder in the town to a nicer house or associating with richer or more important figures in a town. Jesus forbids despising the hospitality and provision of God's people, no matter how humble or lowly the source. The disciples were not to fear to associate with the humble or poor, as long as those humble souls loved Christ and the gospel message. When we were overseas, uh, my wife and I were in ministry in Dubai for six years. We raised support to be there. And so we had sweet partners in this gospel and Great Commission ministry. Some of the sweetest provision we experienced came from the less wealthy members of our former church. It was a a, a sweet and humbling thing for us to receive. Brothers and sisters, let us grow in receiving from others as well as providing for others. This is one way that we remind each other of our neediness before Christ and work against self-reliance. I remember as a a new seminary grad, uh, as a 24-year-old, spending a a summer when I was in between jobs and waiting on full-time ministry, living in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and driving two hours to my hometown every weekend to worship with my home church. And I was asked by my former youth pastor to take a Sunday school class that summer. And I remember as I was waiting tables over that summer and not making a lot of money and reliant on my tips for God to provide for, you, for me, getting in the car one Saturday night to head home to stay with a friend so that I could teach a Sunday school the next morning, Realizing I I had enough money in my pocket to fill my tank to get there, but I didn't have enough to get back. And I remember simply trusting God and praying and saying, God, you've called me to to do this ministry. I pray that you would provide for me to come back. Now, I'm sure I could have bummed money off of someone, that I could have borrowed money from someone, but it was an opportunity for me to trust God, and so I did. And that Sunday morning, right after teaching the class, with nothing in my pocket but some change, A sweet elderly woman, Auntie Twyla, who had been our babysitter when we were little, saw me and stuffed a $20 bill in my hand. This sweet little lady on Social Security gave me $20. And I remember in that moment thinking, should I take this money from this sweet old lady? And almost immediately feeling conviction that that was a prideful response. Here is a sweet and godly woman wanting to encourage a young man who's pursuing ministry by giving something of what God has entrusted to her. God provided for my trip back as I was faithful with the ministry he had called me to. And that sweet older woman continued to support me and my family as we were in Dubai. $10 a month she would send. As we were overseas and raising support, it was not the usual suspects, but often quiet, inconspicuous folks, people who lived simply and gave generously out of their love for Christ. Generosity does not correlate 
with the number on your salary check. Christian generosity directly correlates with the amount of affection you have for Christ. Jesus didn't exalt the wealthy. He exalted here the generous. Now look also at verse 5. Rejection is also anticipated by Christ. Verse 5, whatever, And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus foretells. He tells his disciples to account for rejection and reminds them that they are only messengers, ambassadors rep- representing Christ to a world in rebellion against him. Rejection of Christ's messengers is not personal. To us. It's personal to Christ. When people reject the gospel message, they reject Christ. It's a rejection of Him. And when the message is rejected, Jesus tells His disciples to demonstrate through the physical act of shaking dust from their sandals as a witness that these people had made a spiritual decision to reject God and His offer of salvation. Now note, this is not a failed mission when this happens. Jesus does not send his people on failed missions. And faithfulness is not necessarily seen in immediate fruit, but perhaps in a faithfully proclaimed message being rejected. Knowing that we are faithful to Christ and to his gospel gives us courage, regardless of the response of the hearer. And then look at verse 6. These disciples were faithful to Christ's commission. Verse 6, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Do you see what Jesus was doing here? He was discipling his disciples. He was giving them an apprenticeship. He was giving them ministry training wheels by which they could learn through on-the-job training. This is part of what it means to do faithful, Christ-like discipleship. This is what Paul, as we saw just some weeks ago, It's what Paul called Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is what we seek to do as a church too. We seek to be raising up among us people who have gifts of teaching and of speaking and using those gifts in smaller ways and as people are faithful and grow in those gifts, giving them more and more responsibility. We love seeing Members of the church, men and women, serving as small group leaders and growing and using gifts of teaching to build up the body of Christ. Praise God for more and more people who are seeing those gifts affirmed and being a blessing to the larger body. We do this in our equip class by having members serve and teaching in those equip classes, by having men lead service. We seek to do this not only in our own church as we raise up people among us, but We do this as a church as well. We've budgeted in 2020 for an internship program for the fall of this year. And our hope is to be raising up young men who want to be pastors and to be giving them opportunities, such training wheels, to be using their gifts in the church and prepared for future and more substantial ministry. We've done this in our missions budget by partnering with a pastoral internship in East Asia. Jesus sent his disciples to make disciples, and that's why we are here today, because they were faithful with that message. And because they had been learning to do this, even when Jesus was still alive. So, let's remember our main point here. The king commissions, and the king provides. Here at the end of this section, in verses 7 to 9, Luke pauses between the accounts of the disciples' first missionary endeavor and the account that follows that of the feeding of the 5,000. These two passages are clearly linked because we'll see in verse 10 that the apostles are returning from their journeys. And for three verses, Luke pauses to consider the earthly king, Herod. Luke has already, in chapter 3, in verses 18 to 20, introduced Herod as the one who had imprisoned John the Baptist. But now Luke tells us that Herod has, in fact, beheaded John. And now Herod begins hearing reports of Jesus' ministry. That's expanding. It looks like because it's expanding through his disciples' ministry, that word is coming back to the king. 
And Luke records that Herod is perplexed. Looks like he's fearful. He's shaken. Luke is anticipating here the future political opposition that Jesus would face, one that would lead to his death at the hand of the Romans. But while Herod would one day have a hand in Jesus' death, at this point, Herod is simply fearful of Jesus. And as we can see clearly, he should be. Jesus had power Herod could never dream of. And that's exactly the point. As the earthly king is shaken, the heavenly king is establishing his spiritual and eternal kingdom on earth through the proclamation of the gospel message. But Herod's primary concern here is trying to figure out who Jesus is. He clearly has been hearing the superstitious musings of the crowd that Jesus might be some resurrected prophet like John the Baptist or Elijah. But we see that Herod's question here is the right one. Who is this about whom I hear such things? And Jesus, in just a moment, is going to do even greater things. So that was point number one, the king's commission. Point number two, and more quickly, the king's provision. Point number two, the king's provision. Read with me, verses 10 to 17. On their return, the apostles told him, that is Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear on, and the disciples uh, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. We see at the beginning of this passage, the disciples were excited to share with Jesus all that they had done, all of the ministry that they had taken part in and the ways that they had seen God use them. And it looks like Jesus is uh, withdrawing with them for an extended time of debrief in order to share these stories and perhaps learn more from him, from some of these particular situations that they found themselves in. But as they are withdrawing for this time of reflection and debrief and fellowship together again, the crowds hear that Jesus is there and follow him. And it looks like an incredibly large crowd there described here as being about 5,000 men. And the word there is particularly meaning men, that is, male people, meaning there was much more than simply 5,000 people. Do you see what Jesus does here? What Jesus does to any that would seek him. Verse 11, he welcomes them. He welcomes any that would come to him, that would seek him. And he then does the same thing that he had called his disciples to do. He speaks to them, verse 11, of the kingdom of God. And he does the same thing that he had commissioned his disciples to do. He heals those who have need of healing. You see, the disciples were simply imitating their master Jesus. And while Jesus is preaching a gospel that involves himself and curing those with his own power, these disciples were pointing people to him as the one who can meet their every need. You see Jesus' concern here, as the disciples were to be concerned with the whole human being. You see, Jesus has come not only to cure us of our spiritual primary need of curing us from our sin and restoring us to a relationship with God, he's concerned to restore our whole uh, human nature, to heal us from sickness and from the dominion of Satan and his demons. You know, we as Christians should do the same. 
we as well should be concerned for the spiritual well-being of our fellow man and for their physical well-being. And as the disciples imitated Jesus here, we should do the same with a concern for our neighbors and our fellow man with all of their different needs. And in this way, demonstrate that Christ and Christ alone is the only one who can deal with all of the needs that we have. Now, an interesting thing happens. The day wears on, and the twelve, out of a concern for the crowd, encourage Jesus to send the people away so that they can find lodging, that they can find food in the surrounding areas because it says that they're in a desolate place. Some translations say a desert place. But Jesus has another lesson to teach them. And look at the command he gives them in verse 13. You give them something to eat. He commands them to do something that is actually impossible for them to do. But then he finds a way through his infinite power as the creator God to make something out of nothing and to miraculously multiply these loaves and fish so that there is then a wonderful feast there in the desert. Now this passage teaches us something very clearly, something very important about Jesus. Jesus here is pointing us back to the God of the Old Testament, the Yahweh of Israel, who provided manna, bread, miraculously in the wilderness for his people. Jesus is actually saying, I am Yahweh, and I am going to miraculously provide for my people in their time of need when they're in the desert. And Jesus does this here. He's demonstrating who he is as Israel's God. Israel's human Messiah is also God himself in human flesh. But he's also demonstrating that he is the Messiah who spreads a feast to satisfy his people. This feast, we are told, one day is going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb where Christ's bride, the church, is one day united with him and is able to then feast with him and enjoy him. A meal prepared by him where we can meet with him and sit with him and and enjoy a meal together. A picture of true fellowship. Jesus here prepares such a feast in the desert before his people. And such a feast in which they are all satisfied. You notice that at the end these 12 disciples who distribute this food, there is so much left over that there are 12 large baskets left over of scraps. Many people have tried to figure out why there were 12 baskets of scraps. As Carson puts it, perhaps the best explanation is to see that even the scraps of Christ's provision is enough to provide for God's people. God's people represented here by the leaders of the the twelve apostles. But there's something that this passage teaches us not only about Jesus, that he is Israel's God, and that he is the Messiah who will spread a feast before his people, foreshadowing that day when we will all be united with him and enjoy him forever. There is something that Jesus is teaching his disciples about ministry. That ministry isn't ultimately about us, what we can give to others. It's about Jesus. You know, our ministry, the the disciples' ministry, was not a ministry that was about them. It was a ministry about Christ. The truth that they preach, the hope that they hold out, the love that they have for people, the comfort that they give and the provision that they offer. They're all Christ's. We, as His disciples and followers and representatives on this earth. We're only the vessel, the conduit, the pipeline, the messenger. What is needed in our ministry to Christ is simply a willingness to be used. When it comes to the Great Commission, I hope you, like me, feel not ready for the task. But you know, that isn't the point. Being ready isn't the point. None of us are ultimately ready because we have nothing in and of ourselves to give. C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia and Prince Caspian, uh, Aslan the lion who is to picture 
Christ asks Prince Caspian, do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? And Caspian says, I don't think so, sir. I'm only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. And that's the point. In this great commission task, none of us should feel sufficient. Because what we are advancing is not our own kingdom, but Christ's. And what we are doing is not our own ministry, but Christ's. And what is needed, as it was with the disciples, is simply a willingness to be used. Luke highlights that the disciples know that they can't feed these people. But Christ tells them, you give them something to eat. But then Luke focuses that it is the disciples who go and tell everyone to sit down. And then the disciples who bring the food. Christ is empowering them to care for his sheep. A wonderful picture of what he would do in the days ahead and even in our own day. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are here to advance Christ's kingdom and not our own. Which kingdom are you advancing? Remember that every talent, every experience and material possession that we have is meant to be used to advance Christ's kingdom. As you search your own hearts, do you see his teaching and this teaching about God using us in our weakness to do his work? Is that prevailing in your life? Notice that Jesus doesn't prize our being prepared over our being dependent. Reliance is heaven's ethic. Growing in dependence is actually the way that we prepare both for ministry and for heaven. So as we've seen in our passage, the king commissions. He commissions us to be his ambassadors. And the king provides. He is the great provider who provides himself in this wonderful salvation and then provides in the ministry that he calls us to. In conclusion, I wanted to take a moment just to comment on the situation that we find ourselves in, both as members of this church as well as members in this world during this time of this COVID-19 and this coronavirus that is spreading. And I think there's things in this passage that help us The first thing that I would say to you, brothers and sisters, in this time is that we should not be surprised by this. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to not act surprised, to not be surprised. We, as Christ's people, of all people, we understand sin better than the people of this world. We understand sickness and death and its source and the curse that God has brought on this fallen world. Let me encourage you to not be surprised by this. Christ has promised that trouble and difficulty would come and that sin would continue to reign until he returns and sets everything right. Secondly, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to display faith and confidence in God in the midst of difficulty in a fallen world. We should, as God's people, display faith and confidence in God in the midst of the most dire circumstances. Spurgeon, during a cholera outbreak in 1954, which occurred in London in August and September of that year, said this, If there was ever a time when the mind is sensitive, it is when death is abroad. I remember when first I came to London how anxiously people listened to the gospel for The cholera was raging terribly. There was very little scoffing then. We encourage you, brothers and sisters, to display faith and confidence in God in the face of such anxiety in this fallen world, and so be a witness to the watching world. Thirdly, let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to love your neighbors. To love your neighbors. There are practical ways that we can love our neighbor. One of the ways is by canceling our service and moving to this live stream. We should love our neighbor as Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote in 1527. By actually, he says, we can do things like love our neighbor by helping them in the time of difficulty if our neighbors are in need. He says, I shall, this is 1527, fumigate 
houses. I will help purify the air. I will administer medicine and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. And I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or for the death of others. However, if my neighbor needs me, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely as stated above, trusting God. Let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be loving your neighbor during this time, whether it's practically meeting needs of those around you, or very practically avoiding contaminating either yourself or others. And lastly, let me encourage you, Christian, to delight in the fellowship that we have with Christ and with one another. It may be that you have some more time on your hands. Let me encourage you to draw near to Christ and enjoy extra fellowship with Him. And also long for the day when we will be reunited with one another and with Christ. And in your own heart, prize the gathering of Christ's people in the church as we look forward to the day when we would be united together. I hope that this is encouraging and helpful. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us to do this. Father, thank you for this time reflecting on your word. Thank you for Christ, the King, who commissions us to the task of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We thank you that where the king commissions, he also provides himself and provides for the ministry he calls us to. We pray that we would be faithful today in our families, in our homes, in our spheres of influence, and that we would see you use us, snatching people from the fire, saving people from their sin through preaching the gospel, and faithfully loving others and one another in a way that pictures Christ and his incredible love for us. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.